Chapter Nineteen of Book One of Les Miserables, Volume Two by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kai Lu. Les Miserables, Volume Two by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book First, Waterloo, Chapter Nineteen. The battlefield at night. Let us return. It is a necessity in this book to that fatal battlefield. On the eighteenth of June, the moon was full. Its light favored Blucher's ferocious pursuit, betrayed the traces of the fugitives, delivered up that disastrous mass to the eager Prussian cavalry, and aided the massacre. Such tragic favors of the night do occur sometimes during catastrophes. After the last cannon shot had been fired. The plain of Mont Saint Jean remained deserted. The English occupied the encampment of the French. It is the usual sign of victory to sleep in the bed of the vanquished. They established their bivouac beyond Rassomme. The Prussians, let loose on the retreating rout, pushed forward. Wellington went to the village of Waterloo to draw up his report to Lord Bathurst. If ever the sick vos non vobis was applicable, it certainly is to that village of Waterloo. Waterloo took no part and lay half a league from the scene of action. Mont Saint Jean was cannonaded, Hougomont was burned, La Haisson was taken by assault, Papelot was burned, Plancenoit was burned. La Belle Alliance beheld the embrace of the two conquerors. These names are hardly known, and Waterloo, which worked not in the battle, bears off all the honor. We are not of the number of those who flatter war when the occasion presents itself. We tell the truth about it. War has frightful beauties which we have not concealed. It has also, we acknowledge, some hideous features. One of the most surprising is the prompt stripping of the bodies of the dead after the victory. The dawn which follows a battle always rises on naked corpses. Who does this? Who thus soils the triumph? What hideous furtive hand is that which is slipped into the pocket of victory? What pickpockets are they who ply their trade in the rear of glory? Some philosophers, Voltaire among the number, affirm that it is precisely those persons have made the glory. It is the same men, they say. There is no relief corps. Those who are erect pillage those who are prone on the earth. The hero of the day is the vampire of the night. One has assuredly the right, after all, to strip a corpse a bit when one is the author of that corpse. For our own part, we do not think so. It seems to us impossible that the same hand should pluck laurels and purloin the shoes from a dead man. One thing is certain, which is that generally after conquerors follow thieves. But let us leave the soldier, especially the contemporary soldier, out of the question. Every army has a rearguard, and it is that which must be blamed. Bat-like creatures, half brigands and lackeys. All the sorts of vespertios that that twilight called war engenders, wearers of uniforms who take no part in the fighting, pretended invalids, formidable limpers, interloping sutlers, trotting along in little carts, sometimes accompanied by their wives, and stealing things which they sell again, beggars offering themselves as guides to officers, soldiers' servants, marauders, armies on the march in days gone by. We are not speaking of the present. Dragged all this behind them, so that in the special language they are called stragglers, 
No army, no nation was responsible for those beings. They spoke Italian and followed the Germans, then spoke French and followed the English. It was by one of these wretches, a Spanish straggler who spoke French, that the Marquis of Fervac, deceived by his Picard jargon, and taking him for one of our own men, was traitorously slain and robbed on the battlefield itself, in the course of the night which followed the victory of Cerisole. The rascal sprang from this marauding. The detestable maxim, live on the enemy, produced this leprosy, which a strict discipline alone could heal. There are reputations which are deceptive. One does not always know why certain generals, great in other directions, have been so popular. Turenne was adored by his soldiers because he tolerated pillage. Evil permitted constitutes part of goodness. Turenne was so good that he allowed the Palatinate to be delivered over to fire and blood. The marauders in the train of an army were more or less in number, according as the chief was more or less severe. Hulk and Marceau had no stragglers. Wellington had few, and we do him the justice to mention it. Nevertheless, on the night of the 18th to the 19th of June, the dead were robbed. Wellington was rigid. He gave orders that anyone caught in the act should be shot. But Rapine is tenacious. The marauders stole in one corner of the battlefield, while others were being shot in another. The moon was sinister over this plain. Towards midnight, a man was prowling about, or rather climbing in the direction of the hollow road of Oain. To all appearance, he was one of those whom we have just described, neither English nor French, neither peasant nor soldier, less a man than a ghoul attracted by the scent of the dead bodies, having theft for his victory, and come to riffle Waterloo. He was clad in a blouse that was something like a greatcoat. He was uneasy and audacious. He walked forwards and gazed behind him. Who was this man? The knight probably knew more of him than the day. He had no sack, but evidently he had large pockets under his coat. From time to time he halted, scrutinized the plain around him, as though to see whether he were observed, bent over abruptly, disturbed something silent and motionless on the ground, then rose and fled. His sliding motion, his attitudes, his mysterious and rapid gestures, caused him to resemble those twilight larvae which haunt ruins, and which ancient Norman legends call the allures. Certain nocturnal waiting birds produce these silhouettes among the marshes. A glance capable of piercing all that mist deeply would have perceived at some distance a sort of little sutler's wagon with a fluted wicker hood, harnessed to a famished nag which was cropping the grass across its bit as it halted, hidden as it were, behind the hovel which adjoins the highway to Nivet, at the angle of the road from Mont-Saint-Jean to Brenelude, and in the wagon a sort of woman seated on coffers and packages. Perhaps there was some connection between that wagon and that prowler. The darkness was serene, not a cloud in the zenith. What matters if the earth be red? The moon remains white. These are the indifferences of the sky. In the fields, branches of trees broken by grape-shot, but not fallen, upheld by their bark, sway gently in the breeze of night. A breath, almost a respiration, moved the shrubbery. Quivers which resembled the departure of souls ran through the grass. In the distance, the coming and going of patrols and the general rounds of the English camp were audible. Ugama and La Haisan continued to burn, forming, one in the west, the other in the east, 
two great flames which were joined by the cordon of bivouac fires of the English, like a necklace of rubies with two carbuncles at the extremities, as they extended in an immense semicircle over the hills along the horizon. We have described the catastrophe of the road of Owain. The heart is terrified at the thought of what that death must have been to so many brave men. If there is anything terrible, if there exists a reality which surpasses dreams, it is this. To live, to see the sun, to be in full possession of virile force, to possess health and joy, to laugh valiantly, to rush towards a glory which one sees dazzling in front of one, to feel in one's breast lungs which breathe, a heart which beats, a will which reasons, to speak, think, hope, love, to have a mother, to have a wife, to have children, to have the light, and all at once, in the space of a shout, in less than a minute, to sink into an abyss, to fall, to roll, to crush, to be crushed, to see ears of wheat, flowers, leaves, branches, not to be able to catch hold of anything, to feel one's sword useless, men beneath one, horses on top of one, to struggle in vain since one's bones have been broken by some kick in the darkness, to feel a heel which makes one's eyes start from their sockets, to bite horses' shoes in one's rage, to stifle, to yell, to writhe, to be beneath and to say to oneself, but just a little while ago I was a living man. There, where that lamentable disaster had uttered its death rattle, all was silence now. The edges of the hollow road were encumbered with horses and riders, inextricably heaped up, terrible entanglements. There was no longer any slope, for the corpses had leveled the road with the plain, and reached the brim like a well-filled bushel of barley. A heap of dead bodies in the upper part, a river of blood in the lower part, such was that road on the evening of the 18th of June, 1815. The blood ran even to Venive Highway, and there overflowed in a large pool in front of the abatis of trees which barred the way, at a spot which is still pointed out. It will be remembered that it was at the opposite point, in the direction of the Genap Road, that the destruction of the cuirassiers had taken place. The thickness of the layer of bodies was proportioned to the depth of the hollow road. Toward the middle, at the point where it became level, where Delors' division had passed, the layer of corpses was thinner. The nocturnal prowler whom we had just shown to the reader was going in that direction. He was searching that vast tomb. He gazed about. He passed the dead in some sort of hideous review. He walked with his feet in the blood. All at once he paused. A few paces in front of him, in the hollow road, at the point where the pile of dead came to an end, an open hand, illumined by the moon, projected from beneath that heap of men. That hand had on its finger something sparkling, which was a ring of gold. The man bent over, remained in a crouching attitude for a moment, and when he rose there was no longer a ring on the hand. He did not precisely rise. He remained in a stooping and frightened attitude, with his back turned to the heap of dead, scanning the horizon on his knees, with the whole upper portion of his body supported on his two forefingers, which rested on the earth, and his head peering above the edge of the hollow road. The jackal's four paws suit some actions. Then, coming to a decision, he rose to his feet. At that moment he gave a terrible start. He felt someone clutch him from behind. 
He wheeled round. It was the open hand which had closed and had seized the skirt of his coat. An honest man would have been terrified. This man burst into a laugh. Come, said he. It's only a dead body. I prefer a spook to a gendarme. But the hand weakened and released him. Effort is quickly exhausted in the grave. Well now, said the prowler. Is that dead fellow alive? Let's see. He bent down again, fumbled among the heap, pushed aside everything that was in his way, seized the hand, grasped the arm, freed the head, pulled out the body, and a few moments later he was dragging the lifeless, or at least the unconscious man, through the shadows of the hollow road. He was a crassier, an officer, and even an officer of considerable rank. A large gold epaulet peeped from beneath the cuirass. This officer no longer possessed a helmet. A furious sword cut had scarred his face, where nothing was discernible but blood. However, he did not appear to have any broken limbs, and by some happy chance, if that word is permissible here, the dead had been vaulted above him in such a manner as to preserve him from being crushed. His eyes were still closed. On his cuirass he wore the silver cross of the Legion of Honor. The prowler tore off this cross, which disappeared into one of the gulfs which he had beneath his great coat. Then he felt of the officer's fob, discovered a watch there, and took possession of it. Next he searched his waistcoat, found a purse, and pocketed it. When he arrived at this stage of succor, which he was administering to this dying man, the officer opened his eyes. Thanks, he said feebly. The abruptness of the movements of the man who was manipulating him, the freshness of the night, the air which he could inhale freely, had roused him from his lethargy. The prowler made no reply. He raised his head. A sound of footsteps was audible in the plain. Some patrol was probably approaching. The officer murmured, for the death agony was still in his voice. Who won the battle? The English, answered the prowler. The officer went on. Look in my pockets. You will find a watch and a purse. Take them. It was already done. The prowler executed the required feint, and said, There is nothing there. I have been robbed, said the officer. I am sorry for that. You should have had them. The steps of the patrol became more and more distinct. Someone is coming, said the prowler, with the movement of a man who was taking his departure. The officer raised his arm feebly, and detained him. You have saved my life. Who are you? The prowler answered rapidly, and in a low voice. Like yourself, I belong to the French army. I must leave you. If they were to catch me, they would shoot me. I have saved your life. Now get out of the scrape yourself. What is your rank? Sergeant. What is your name? Fenardier. I shall not forget that name, said the officer. And do you remember mine? My name is Pomercy. End of Book One, Chapter Nineteen.